When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode features a conversation with Lasse Brun, the Chief Executive Officer of 50 by 40, a coalition of organizations dedicated to cutting the production and consumption of industrial animal products around the world by 50% by 2040. We cover the mission of 50 by 40 and the collective impact it hopes to make, and why it is important to reduce meat consumption and production, and what the impact of 50% reduction by 2040 will be. More importantly, we dive into how we can realistically meet this goal. Lhasa talks about the role governments and regulations globally will play and the complex issues involved in the need for engaging with big meat companies to bring about the change we need in industrial livestock production. These are nuanced and complicated subjects and Lhasa provides a very balanced and pragmatic view on how we can transform the food system in a way that leads to more sustainable and equitable outcomes. He talks about the role that all stakeholders, from corporations to governments to everyday voters, can play in shaping this future. He also provides insights around the ongoing UN Food Systems Summit, where he is Global Civil Society Lead for Action Track 2 of the summit. We also discuss whether industrial livestock production is finally getting the spotlight it deserves in the mainstream narrative around climate change and climate action. We close out our discussion with the key challenges or problems Lasse is focused on tackling in the short term, and he shares why it is important for all factions in the food movement to stay committed to working together. I really enjoyed this nuanced and in-depth conversation about the challenge of global food systems change, and I hope you gain a lot from it. Lasse Brun, thank you so much for joining us again on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been on the podcast before, and we did, this was probably the early days of 50 by 40. Uh, it's still in some ways pretty early days for your organization. But for someone who hasn't listened to that first episode, is not aware of the work that you're doing, maybe we can start with uh, the name 50 by 40 itself. What does it stand for? Because it's not just the name of your organization. It encapsulates your mission and the vision you have for the next uh for the future of food. So let's start there. What is 50 by 40? 50 by 40 is a collective impact organization. What does that mean? I mean, most people say, yeah. So so what, what's the reasoning behind that? What is a collective impact really? And 
It is an organization that works across many different stakeholders uh, in the recognition that to really change things around, specifically as it pertains to livestock, we need to engage all stakeholders, whether it is those who work with industry, those who work on social justice and health, climate change, and so forth. And for the name specifically, as you alluded to, um, the name is just not the name, is actually our vision, which is a 50% reduction of animal protein uh, production and consumption by the year 2040. And that's relative to 2017 figures. So our, our, our slight ambition here is to, by the year 2040, have halved the amount of animal protein that is produced and consumed compared to what's happening in 2017 and taking into consideration the population growth. Now, while that sounds quite ambitious, we do think it is a good balance between what is ambitious, but also what is realistic. And our the last couple of years have actually reinforced that. I think it's important just to mention that the 50% reduction is not equally applicable around the world. There's a specific focus on the countries where you have the most uh, production and consumption of animal protein, namely North America, Europe, Australia, and a few other locations. So in a typical European country and in the US, you'd be looking at a 70 to 90% reduction to be able to meet this goal. Whereas in many uh, middle-income and particularly low-income countries, there might be a slight increase, but the uh, ambition is to find a global average. In terms of the impact of uh, that number, when it's when you say fifty percent reduction by twenty forty, what are you uh, envisioning to be the impact, both from a perhaps a climate global temperature rise or impact on ecosystems or communities? Have you further sort of taken that number and tried to assess where would you, if you are successful, what would that impact look like? It's a very good question. So there are different aspects to it. One is, and let's start with the, one of the bigger ones, climate change. I mean, as is hopefully and as surely slowly getting much more apparent to, to everyone around the world is a strong linkage between animal protein consumption and climate change. So limiting 50% uh, by 2040 would have a massive effect on climate change. And that is, that is the case now, and it's even more so the case in the future, because whereas livestock right now accounts for about 14.5 at least percent, it is expected to account for much, much more in the coming years if current uh, trends continue. So there's, there's an issue of reversing, but there's also very much an issue of preempting a growth and, and stopping uh, that in, in its works. So um, from a climate change perspective, it would mean a lot because when we move into a future that hopefully is gonna be much more um, fueled literally by renewable energy and is much more based on sustainable um, energy production, consumption, transportation, what have you, and where there's more like a focus on uh, less travel unless it's necessary, particularly prompted by the COVID for instance now, um, it would be such a pity to reach all these amazing goals on renewable energy and changing the world in such great ways, but then continuing with one of the most destructive um, production systems, i.e. industrialized animal agriculture, um, when we have a chance to do something much, much better. So that would be one key area. 
So climate change would benefit dramatically from that change. Another part of is its health, right? So there's a direct link between undernutrition in the global south and obesity in the global north. There's like the, the, the numbers fluctuate a bit, but they, roughly speaking, there's about 1 billion uh, undernourished people in the world as the 1 billion obese people in the world. And a lot of that obesity, cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes and so forth is actually prompted by, uh, upheld by uh, excessive animal protein consumption, which leads to high cholesterol, blood clotting and so forth. And those production systems, the production system that dictates growing lots of feed to feed uh, livestock, uh, whether it's pigs and chickens and cows, for instance, or the grazing of particular ruminants to, to sustain that demand is directly affecting the, um, the growth of sustainable uh, pr production in, uh, high, sorry, in low income and middle income countries, and particularly uh, in developing nations. So there is a direct link between cutting down meat consumption in the global north and meeting nutritional needs in the global south. So if that change is to happen, not only will it make sure that many more people are less prone to type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, essentially it would improve public health dramatically um, and save a lot of money on the, uh, the national budgets for, for, for countries around the world. It will also allow the freeing up of the land and the space and the resources to grow much more nutritional food directly in developing nations where that is needed. So that's the health aspect. So that's climate change and health. If you want to look a little bit of the biodiversity or the general environmental issues, well, again, livestock production is one of the most destructive systems for, for water systems, for biodiversity loss, for uh, air pollution. Just a new study came out just the other day that demonstrated that, that air pollution from uh, agricultural production, particularly livestock production, particularly pig production in the U.S., has thousands and thousands of deaths associated with it every year. And that's just being in the vicinity of the production. So the air quality is dramatically uh, decreased. And then you see how the, uh, the, the leakage from uh, the CAFOs, the concentrated animal feeding operations, are leaking into local water systems, destroying aquatic life, destroying, disrupting the food chain and so forth. There's always a massive link between the CAFO and lots of um, loss of biodiversity around those areas and also much further away because it's carried by the water. This is particularly the case in the US. And there is, so that's the biodiversity environmental angle. The two more things I wanna mention. One is of course, which is very relevant right now, the emergence of pandemics, mm -hmm. because all major um, pandemics have been caused by uh, zoonotic diseases like COVID, right? It's the case with the uh, Kreisfeld-Jakob's disease, what's the case with, with, with um, with the H1N1 and so forth, all those were prompted by intensive animal agriculture production. So that's that's a huge part as well. And right now there are massive discussions taking place that are looking into the importance of addressing livestock production purely from a, a, a pandemic prevention perspective and to grow health resilience. We can talk much more about AMR, antimicrobial resistance as well, which is another big issue, but I'll leave that for now. And just mention the last point, which I think should not in any way be underestimated, which are finances. Mm. Because the current agriculture model that is so reliant on intensive livestock production is essentially not very good 
uh, a good financial system for, for countries, neither the ones where the feed is produced or the ones where the actual animals are reared. And that's because those intensive systems are not producing a lot of um, added benefits from a GDP perspective. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that they do not employ a lot of people. They employ a lot of people, but compared to more plant-based or crop-based production systems, particularly if you go into production systems that are much more based on sustainable farming or agroecology, permaculture, regenerative agriculture, however you want to phrase it, like the good stuff, um, you create many more jobs, many more better, better paid jobs, more gender equitable jobs, and so forth. So there's also a direct link between shifting to more plant-based food and actually creating more jobs and better jobs. And allow me just to give an example. So the International Labor Organization and the Inter-American Bank last year published a study that demonstrated that if, for instance, Latin America and the Caribbean were to shift much more towards plant-based food production, that by 2030, that would generate net 15 million new jobs. So it is now slowly, the, the anecdotal evidence is starting to become concrete, provable studies that demonstrate as we shift to much more plant-based food uh, diet, diets, um, um, that there is actually a generation of jobs, which essentially means better GDP. So all the finance ministers will be happy as well. And that's the whole thing. That's the thing we're trying to push as well, to demonstrate that if you want to make this shift, you make the, in every country, and particularly at the UN level, you make uh, the ministers of, of climate change happy, the ministers of agriculture, the ministers of health, the ministers of environment, and the ministers of finance. And if you can make all those happy at the same time, you have a good case. I have one more question on the on the name itself and sort of tied into your your goal of a 50% reduction in production and consumption before we switch to the how, you know, how are we going to, mm -hmm. I totally agree with mm -hmm. the why. Uh, I think you've laid it out pretty well. Um, it's it's a compelling case for why we need to make the shift. Um, in, you you mentioned this earlier that uh, the measurement of 50% reduction is based on 2017 numbers. I just wanted to kind of highlight that point because uh, a lot of recent discussions and efforts around tackling the problem of industrial livestock or the factory farming uh, industry has sort of been shifting to more of a conversation about how we need to uh, slow down the pace of growth, uh, which is possibly related and, of course, intertwined with what you're talking about. But what you're, you're, you're mentioning is not just slowing down the pace of growth because meat production is, is uh, projected to increase in the next uh, few decades, uh, making the current problems um, infinitely worse mm -hmm. uh, when mm -hmm. we're actually supposed to be headed in the other direction. But what you're talking about is an actual reduction in number, not just uh, let's just keep things where they are at the moment and let's not let it get worse. So can you clarify that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if we were to just say, let's keep keep levels where they are now, and, you know, it's the term peak livestock has been thrown around, like which is an imitation of peak peak oil, uh, essentially saying, well, now should be the time where we peak in the global production, irrespective of how many people there are, we should not grow the production of livestock anymore at all. Um, so that, that's one aspect of it. But if we were to, to do that, just stop it now, 
we would still not be able to fulfill all those great things I laid out before in terms of the benefits of shifting things around because the current level is still way, way, way too much. So even if we said, well, if we stop now, that relative to the population growing to about just 10.5 billion uh, in the next couple of decades, that should be fine because two, two and a half billion more people, that means effectively globally we'll be eating less. Isn't that fine? Unfortunately not, it is not in, not fine. Particularly because we have a growing population, we have to shift the diets. So the number doesn't doesn't only have to stagnate and stop completely. It definitely has to go down. And the numbers around what that specifically means, and there are so many studies you can point to, like Livestock's Long Shadow, there are the Eat Lancet report. Essentially, do we need a vegan vegetarian world? Well, that would be nice for many different reasons. Is it realistic? I don't think so right now. Um, is it necessary to meet those goals I talked about? No, but a heavy reduction is needed. Yeah, in fact, yeah, I forget which study said this, uh, but uh, or laid it out that even if we were to switch, and I think you kind of alluded to this point earlier as well, that even if you were to switch to 100% renewable energy and do everything else that we're doing to divest from fossil fuels and to shift to electric vehicles and uh, and other sources of, of powering the world, we will not be able to meet our um, our goals of keeping emissions under 1.5 degrees Celsius, on emissions, sorry, temperature rise under 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we need to, in, if you want to prevent catastrophic climate change, uh, if you leave um, food production or the food industry and largely industrial livestock as it is. So I, I, I totally, I think it's, it's great that you're, it definitely makes the issue a lot more complicated because you're not just talking about let's slow down growth. You're also talking about reversing growth uh, or Indeed. degrowth, right? Indeed. In some sense. So the question then obviously becomes is that if you look at the industrial meat production or meat and dairy production, um, or let's just take meat for that matter. Like there's four countries that control about 80% of uh, beef packaging, um, 85% of Soybean processing is also controlled by around four companies. And the same goes for if you look at pork uh, processing or chicken processing, it is a handful of companies that pretty much control the global trade. And that's, you know, if you dig deeper into the into the global food system, you'll find that that's true of literally every uh, component of it, uh, whether you're talking about retail, or you're talking about agrochemicals, or you're talking about seeds or fertilizers uh, or pesticides, it's it's a few companies that sort of control the entire market or at least have uh, significant market share. Plus mm -hmm. they have significant vertical integ integration, which means they, they have direct control over different links in the supply chain. Um, and with that level of consolidation and corporate control, um, and if you look at, you know, let's just give a few names of companies like JBS or Tyson or Cargill, when you, whether you read their uh, public statements or their statements to shareholders, they're not talking about a story of uh, slowing growth because, I mean, that would be insane for a company to say that, right? So they're still pretty committed to growth and they talk about increasing revenue and a lot of that is dependent on, uh, you know, opening up new processing plants and increasing, meeting this rising demand for protein as they put it across the world. So I guess 
the big question here is how do we tackle this problem um, uh, without addressing the issue of corporate control? And maybe that the way to address that is to go through governments and figure out a way for them to regulate uh, the industry more. So just general thoughts about the, the corporate control and consolidation in big meat mm-hmm. and dairy and to what extent you can achieve your goals without addressing the, the true elephant in the room, which is big meat and dairy. <laughs> Yeah, the, the big livestock in the room. Yeah, indeed. No, you, you're absolutely right. It is it is a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult conundrum to to address. Um, you touched upon something. I just wanted to start by addressing, which is uh, regulations. Regulations are crucial. And and one example is uh, you'll see that Ezra Klein recently wrote a, a column that spoke about the importance of uh, governments actually regulating the the big new. Uh, alternative meat adventure, which I think is a really, really important point because that is likely to become a very, uh, very important protein source in the future. And um, it's it's important that governments can help push things in the right direction and regulate that market too. So regulation applies to to everything, and and in, I think increased regulations of the, the the livestock sector is needed and has been needed for many, many years. So now about how to tackle that. Well, there are many different schools of thought around that. There are those who say, well, you know, they're there, they're gonna stay there because, you know, they have a massive market power and people are gonna keep using them uh, to for their products. So we can either just let them do whatever they want or we can try to push them to do something better while they're still in power. And, and that would be shifting some of those big companies to embrace more alternative or better production methods. Like, you know, uh, Tyson Foods shifted their name from a, from a meat company to a protein company, deliberately seeing the way the wind is blowing and trying to embrace that and say, well, maybe in 20 years, we're only going to be selling uh, alternative proteins. And let's just get on because they don't care what they sell as long as they, they have a, a, a good revenue. So, one school of thought is saying, let's engage with them and just push them in the right direction. Another school of thought is saying, well, um, that's fine, but not, not really. We really need to address the power holder issue because a few companies should not be allowed to globally control food production, whatever kind of food production it is, in this case, meat production. So in order to address that, we need a, de- need a decentralization, and we need to do that to ensure that the aspects of food sovereignty, so it, that people are within the rights to choose how they grow their food and where they get their food from, is embraced. And the decentralization is only is also a like prerequisite for equitable food distribution because the big companies will only go where the market takes them. They're not concerned about meeting nutritional needs. They're concerned about addressing market market economics and market power going where the money is, essentially. So we need to decentralize them. And that's why you have like uh, um, people like Kate Rawls, who invented you know, the donut theory, which is an amazing book, by the way, um, talking about, well, the only way to address this is to move away from a, a traditional capitalist model and moving into a circular economy instead. Um, which I actually support personally, but I, I think it's going to take some time to implement it. So um, we have the 
yes, let's use the consolidated power. Just make sure that those big machineries are actually at least running in the right direction. And they're saying, no, they need to be dismantled and we need to regain control of food for people to control themselves. Um, I don't think we can go one or the other. It has to be somewhere in between. We need to engage on both fronts. Um, I think it is naive to think that we can just, you know, point fingers at the big companies and, and expect things to, to change unless we engage in a dialogue with them. Only when you engage in a dialogue, you can start making demands, you can start pushing the right buttons, whether it is directly to the company or whether it's through governments in terms of regulations, in terms of market shares, in terms of, of um, uh, breaking up the, the corporate power and, and making sure that smaller players have the same level playing field to enter the market, for instance. Um, but on the other hand, if we are only singing to the two known companies and saying a one-for-one -one shift is great as long as it's plan-based, fine. Uh, it's okay that McDonald's have like the big control of, of the hamburger market, for instance, as long as they're selling the right products. That is not a good development either. So, and that speaks to kind of like what we're trying to do in 50 by 40. We're trying to bring all those different voices together and say, well, we essentially want to end the same way. We want to shift the food system to something that's sustainable, healthy, compassionate and so forth. And in order to do that, we need everybody to, to work together. We need to start slowly to, to disentangle some of that corporate control, but we also need to engage with the, the companies. And then it brings up a, a different, which is in kind of an ethical perspective, where people say, well, why should we engage with these people in the first place? They're, they have wrecked havoc. They have done many bad things. And now we want to like give them a break because they, they want to do the right thing, should we just do, what kind of signal does that send? And I understand that, but I think given the, the importance of shifting the food system and given the incredible urgency we find ourselves in, I don't think we can afford to have that kind of philosophical and ethical conversations much longer. We need to move on with things. And I normally say, well, look at it like, like somebody who's being a, a former criminal somebody who's being imprisoned. I'm not, to, to be clear, I'm not comparing yeah. those companies to criminals. Just to be clear on that. But if that is the case, somebody is, has, has committed things that are not good, mm -hmm. then uh, some people say, well, now they're stigmatized forever and we should not, you know, they should just be cast away. Or should we be looking, well, if we can change things and these, if these people actually want to create something that's better, shouldn't we embrace that? And shouldn't we encourage that? And shouldn't we say, well, this is the kind of behavior and shift that we reward rather than keeping pointing fingers. And I I um, very much uh, support the latter. Yeah, I think what you've uh, outlined very well, I appreciate that response, is the is the various tensions and the the broad spectrum of potential solutions that we have and a lot of it tends to be um sort of value driven in some ways i mean there's some people who inherently believe the paradigm that created the problem is not the paradigm that's going to fix the problem mm -hmm. but the problem with that in some ways is that uh we how are we going to snap our fingers and get rid of uh uh, the industrial food system. And if really want to do that, we've also got to get rid of capitalism, really, because it's that's what led to it. There's no uh, accident that we ended up in a place where we are overproducing and overconsuming 
uh, industrial meat and dairy. It, it mm-hmm. is purely as a result of market forces and then the emergence of subsidies through whatever historical reasons that have gotten us to this point, especially in the West. Now, the story is different in other parts of the world, but when you look at the biggest offenders and you look at the fact that we are consuming over 200 pounds of meat per year, uh, this is not a question of whether meat belongs in a diet or not. It's a question of overconsumption and overproduction. And then we've seen the consequences of consolidation and vertical integration uh, and uh, overproduction during the pandemic uh, in 2020, in the early days of the pandemic, when you had farmers who didn't have buyers for their uh, livestock and had to either euthanize the animals, dump Mm -hmm. millions of pounds of milk. Um, And it just tells you that the system is just not working or it's working in a way that only benefits the few companies that I mentioned before uh, and doesn't really benefit the planet and doesn't necessarily even benefit farmers in most cases. So, you know, there's a perfect scenario is, yes, decentralized, democratized food system where everyone has control and food sovereignty. And at 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 a philosophical level, I think you agree, and I mean, I, I, I lean in that direction. I feel, yes, people should have control over their food. Why is it that a few companies decide what we eat and where we shop and um, who produces the food and what ingredients are used? Um, we should have a lot more control, but mm-hmm. how are we going to get to that point is the question. And I think we, to the, to the point of uh, reforming the quote-unquote bad guys, um, the the part where it gets a little complicated there is they aren't going to willfully accept regulations. And I don't see this working without regulation. Let's just take something simple. You pointed out about pollution earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We aren't even, you know, we're not even making the polluters in the industrial livestock system pay. Instead, we are, they are trying to lobby governments to incentivize them to use the manure to turn it into biogas, so firstly, we don't enforce any pollution laws or mm-hmm. we don't enforce laws against them. We create a system that, that, that is basically polluting our rivers and our air and harming communities. And then we're fine. those industries are finding ways to get governments to give them money or handouts to convert this excess manure into biogas. So it's just yeah. sort of a, a bit of a ridiculous example, but it is a real example of the state of that industry. So... It's this shifting of incentives. Uh, yes, you know, getting them to produce alternative proteins is a step, but if that's not accompanied with a commitment to phase out the use of livestock or a commitment to uh, self-regulate or to to or for the government to put more pressure on them to uh, shift away from their current practices, uh, we're, we're going to be basically taken for a ride. So that's that's the concern I have. So I'm trying to. I'm pretty much saying the same thing you did, which is it's not, I feel the tension. On one hand, I'd love for them to all go away, (laughs) but I also know that's unreasonable and impractical. Mm -hmm. That isn't going to happen. So how do we find, and and maybe you can tell tell us more about that. How do you actually uh, facilitate and bring together these different viewpoints uh, that are sometimes direct competition with each other, uh, and find solutions because we we desperately need to find solutions. And how can we end up with solutions where everyone wins? Is that even possible? Because you know, if in some ways a big ag wins, 
there's someone who's losing. That has mm-hmm. been the history of food so far. So any thoughts on that in terms of how do we adjust for different viewpoints and and truly find ways to, in, a, in, in this time horizon that you've set out at least, which is not a small, which is not a big time horizon, you've got... You've got 19 years, Lasse, to make mm-hmm. this happen. How do we find uh, find a way out of this? Yeah, by the way, I hope we check in in 19 years and see see how we did. <laughs> I'm going to check in every did. two years with you. <laughs> uh, great. No, um, those are really big questions. And, and I don't think there's like one specific answer, but but a few thoughts. I First of all, it's important to ensure that uh, the regulators, so the governments and question whether it is national governments and particularly and more more recently very much more important not much more but equally importantly sub-national governments so like cities municipalities and states that they are in a place where they can put in place regulations where they can you know they are enabled to actually regulate and uh, and add a in a free way criticize or bring into questions or hold accountable big ag. And that's not always the case, you know? And so there's an aspect of representation here. So it goes really beyond the political system. It goes much more towards the the aspects of uh, political intricacies and and who's actually, who's got their finger on the button. So, and that's why, um, you know, collaboration internationally also is really important, like the UN Food System Summit, for instance, because you know, we have to have the big picture. We need to go up into like 130,000 feet and look at everything could, and then go down to those different levels to be able to find the best way of in- interacting. So concretely, if you look at a country and, and how things are moving forward there, uh, in the US, the US is heavily influenced by big ag lobby, right? Uh, and there's a very disproportionate uh, push, you know, the amount of money and the the, the power that goes into big ag lobby compared to civil society, for instance, is, is like David and Goliath times Gaussian, right? So there is, there's an element there that there needs to be an increased awareness around um, how, who has influence and how they get influence and follow the money streams, essentially like the traditional thing. Then there's also like who gets selected. And that's where the individual consumer who can vote every time they purchase stuff if they're lucky enough to be able to live in a place where it's available and affordable, but also in terms of voting, regular voting, where you can see a big difference. I mean, just look at the difference between the former White House government and the current one. Like, look at the difference between a president who actually was selling stakes and was a very big proponent for big uh, MEDAC and somebody like uh, Kamala Harris, who is... Uh, a big proponent of shifting to more plant-based food. These things really matter. And who put them there? The people did it, right? So it's very, very important that going forward that we as civil society and all the stakeholders empower the voters to make good decisions. And I think that is where we can change things really in the next couple of years and link it to things that are important to people. Because what do people normally vote on? I cannot speak for a global approach to that, obviously, right? I do have a past in politics, but, you know, people often vote to watch something that's very relevant to them. Most people want to be really altruistic thing, like I vote for changing the world for a better place. But a lot of people are like, hmm, how are my taxes going to be? How is my school going to be dealt with? 
Well, how are things going to be like? How are we going to build a nature reserve next to me? Is the highway going to go over my house? Stuff like that. And they look at those specific things. And often there is a very, um, very strong one-to-one link between I vote for this person because then I can fix this problem, uh, uh, which is close to where I live. And I think a change we're seeing now, particularly with the generational shift, is that people focus much more on the long-term aspects. We see that in eating, for instance, when it comes to health, if you eat less plant-based food specific from a health perspective, that that is not necessarily only what you put in your body instantly, but also looking ahead, like supporting this food system, what is that going to do to me and my family 20 years from now? And um, that, uh, There's a direct link between I eat and the long-term health of the planet and therefore myself. And I think that is also applicable much more to people now. So just coming back to, to kind of rolling the whole thing back, if we become much better at demonstrating to people that if you want your child to be more healthy, if you want your air to be cleaner, if you want to be able to avoid having all your holidays ruined by erratic weather patterns, hurricanes and floods or droughts because of climate change, well, there's a direct link between who you are voting for and because they are going to be empowered to do certain things. And whereas before that has been very much focused on energy, on schools, on rubbish, like a garbage collection. Now is the time where we can focus much more on the food aspect, saying if you want to change these things, you need to vote for people who want to see the food system being changed to X, Y, and Z. Um, I know this is a very long-winded explanation, but I do think in terms of the democratic process and in enlightening people to make those choices that is where we can start to see things and that also speaks to the aspects of education yeah so you don't think it's you know it, it there's a bottoms up and a top down approach and we need to do both i suppose right there's no and in between we also need to find a way to to either reform or regulate the uh, the actual industries or the players in the industries that are in control of our current system or stand to benefit with how things are today or the status quo. So, you know, if, exactly. you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your livelihood and your uh, company's success is dependent on an existing system, you, you really have very little incentive to, to change unless someone comes and presents you with the case that, you know, what about 10 years from now? What about 20 mm-hmm. years from now? Eventually... You know, here's the interesting thing that's happening. Not only uh, are we all uh, in some ways trying to prevent the worst impacts of climate change, we are also starting to realize that the that climate change is already here and we are already starting to feel the impacts. And they impact, of course, disproportionately around the world. It depends on where you live. It depends on, you know... The countries and how much um, how much power and control and money they have, um, but it also is going to impact food production. It's going to impact mm. uh, food security. And so, if you are in the food business, even if you currently, you know, are sitting uh, in control of beef packaging and processing and benefit from monocultures and fertilizers and pesticides, you have to look. A, a little ahead if you want for if you're interested in the long-term financial sustainability of your corporation and wonder what what business you will be in when we have you know decimated our soil and our mm-hmm. 
suffering um and we're facing more frequent floods and and wildfires which is already starting to happen and how yeah. will they impact your farming and your operations and your labor forces and uh and of course the the transportation and consumption of food so i i do think it's yeah and it's it's i hate to boil this down to yes it's complicated because the problem is it is complicated um so so maybe i can so it comes down to a question of prioritizing then, right? And because mm-hmm. you, yes, you need to do everything and it all has to happen now, but there's some things that are more important than others. In in your recent efforts, perhaps through the UN Food System Summit or um, generally through the work you're doing uh, with coalition building, what are you seeing rising to the top in terms of the most high impact solutions um, that perhaps will help you achieve the goal of, 50% reduction of consumption and production in, in animal protein, but generally will bring about the shift that we desperately need. Yeah, so thanks for that. And I think the Food System Summit is a good example. So that's one of the things I, I, I could speak to, which is the the, uh, the international collaboration around food systems change. Then there's also the aspect of addressing the global north-south conundrum in terms of, of food production. And generally, also the the uh, the aspects of generational shift, which gives me a lot of hope. So, for the food system summit, well, it is the food system summit is first of its kind, and it's a very another complicated UN process. It's a voluntary process for now, at least. And now there's been a lot of effort being put in by by all the the, the people and organizations and institutions working on it to make sure that it becomes a truly global inclusive forum and. Uh, member states like the U.S. or many European countries, Asian countries, are engaging in the five action tracks you have there. And just a little thing, comment on that. In, within those action tracks, you have different stakeholders. You have civil society. You have governments. You have uh, consumer groups. You have farmers and so forth. Uh, but you do not have any corporations. And that's an interesting comment to what we spoke about before, because in the beginning, there were plans to put corporations in there. They could sit there and be part of those conversations at the top table where decisions are made about, is this a good solution? Is this a bad solution? And and you could see which way that quickly could go. And based on concerns around that, there was a decision made to exclude corporations specifically from that process, which means they are kind of like, for once, like normally civil society is on the windows outside banging to looking into seeing what's going on. And actually now corporations are outside and looking in and are sitting at the table and trying to find solutions. They can be represented through like uh, networks, like we mean business or the climate group, but they cannot be individual um, uh, organizations, sorry, corporations in there. So I think that's a positive thing, speaking to what we were addressing before. But the Food System Summit is the first of its kind. There hasn't been anything like that before. Food systems aspects have been addressed to some extent through UNFCCC and climate change issue on the FAO or, or what have you, in different, different processes. This is an attempt to kind of bring it all together and have a truly global approach. And I think that is so needed because, as we all know, the globalization has made food production a very global thing. You cannot talk about decreasing livestock production in Northern Europe without addressing the, the feed production in particular the Americas. Um, there's a strong linkage there, and let alone the export from those countries, of, for instance, pork to other countries. And up until now, many of these conversations have been carried out in isolation. Now there's at least a conversation that says, 
how do we collectively solve this? And the whole, the whole idea behind it is to make it open to everybody so everybody can engage in that process. So there has for the last five or six months been a process in which anybody, you, me, anybody, could submit a so-called game-changing proposal, whether it's on education, whether it's in shifting economies, whether it's uh, upping the game on plant-based foods, or whether it is uh, regulate, reg stronger regulations. And then it will be taken forward to a panel through an open process that will look through it. And that includes experts on, on food systems, policy, what have you, the whole shebang. And uh, that has yielded a handful uh, of uh, like a, a large number of proposals that are now being further uh, built up. Uh, 50 by 40, I'm, I myself is part of um, what's so-called action track two, which is on sustainable consumption, looking at the, the health, uh, to some extent, the climate aspects of, um, of food production. And in there, we are then mandated, we're taking those proposals and saying, well, here is somebody from this country who thinks we should be upping the game dramatically and creating this global uh, public-private partnership, for instance, around uh, food procurement for municipalities. Well, how do we do that? So, uh, and then we disseminate that into something. So we, we bring that into something that is um, might be digestible for the whole Food Summit, we bring it up in the public forum, discuss it, and then go back to work it out and flesh it out to something specific that could be made concrete within a given forum. Um, so that whole process has been very open and very inclusive to try to bring all the different stakeholders and use the it's kind of the global brain power to address this issue. So I think that is a big shift because now what comes out of this summit will drastically influence other processes. So concretely on climate change, for instance, which is one of the biggest issues that whatever comes out of the food system summit will be a very strong influence for how climate change is addressed from a food production aspect and for what we care about. Uh, it will enable us to push through the importance of countries addressing livestock production as part of the climate mitigation strategies. And that's what we specifically are pushing for through the work we do on just transition, for instance. So that specific thing gives me hope because I do think that will enable us to, to um, push things slightly in the right direction. Will we get everything done this year at the summit in September? No, not at all. But it's a starting point to have a global conversation around shifting the food systems. And I think what gives me hope is that the corporations are not at the top table. And it also gives me hope that there's a very diverse stakeholder group who are engaging in it. And it also gives me hope that um, it is seen as the first step out of many. There's no like illusions around everything's going to get solved this year. And it pushes the urgency forward. Now, I just want to mention there has been a lot of criticism of the Food System Summit. Some groups have deliberately decided to step out of it, which is based on, on uh, some, there, there has been like accusations of uh, co-optation uh, co from industry. Um, the word greenwashing has been mentioned a few times. Um, I don't think, I don't, is it perfect? It's not. Of course, it's not perfect. But are we in a place where, where I think we should, you know, completely step out of it? I don't think that's good from a strategic perspective, because I do think we can have a lot of influence and push things in the right direction. But I also reserve the right if I to step out. If I think, if I start smelling greenwashing and seeing that happening, well, then I reserve my right as an individual to step out of that process and say, this is not on and start pointing fingers instead. So 
my role personally is also that of a watchdog. I'm like pushing things in the right direction as much as I can, but also keeping an eye on what's going on. But that uh, that whole thing, I think, is a really important step in the right direction. And what are the timelines um, for this process to to kind of come to some sort of a decision point, uh, if if that is even the goal? Um, and what kind of and I guess a follow up question there would be what um, what actions or uh, practical steps do we see emerging out of this effort? Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, and as a matter of fact, we fifty by forty had this event a couple of weeks ago, which is, is specific about engaging stakeholders because there isn't specific clarity around how do we take this forward because it is a very new thing. But the way we we address it and the way we addressed it in our event. Uh, where we invited all kinds of stakeholders was, so we're looking at it from five different key stakeholder groups. So multilateral, like uh, the international fora, national governments, subnational governments, uh, corporations and investors, and consumers slash voters. Those key stakeholders, how do they need to engage in the summit to create, bring something concretely forward? So the, what we asked in this event was, what do you like for this for the participants, which was predominantly disabled society, for them to, to to empower them to push this forward? What do you want to see coming out of the summit? So at the end in September, when the summit is over, what do you want corporations to do? What do you want cities to do? What do you want governments to do? And so forth. Um, and based on that, what you want them to do, what do they need to do now to make that happen? And one concrete example is that. Right now, we do not have enough governments present uh, because it's voluntary. There's increasing numbers and countries are coming in week after week, but it's nothing like 197 countries like in the UNFCCC. So unless we get proper global representation from a governmental perspective, you know, it's not going to be as impactful. So if we want them to take action as governments, particularly in the food climate nexus come September leading into the COP in Glasgow, we need to have them join now. So one concrete step is for the current countries to act as champions and start telling their G7, G20, G77 bodies, come join this party because this is where we talk shop about food. Mm. Well, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm excited to see how this, um, this uh, develops and evolves uh, over the next month and year. Um, and hopefully it does result in some concrete steps taken. And the fact that it's, it's a it's a pretty ambitious effort, and the fact that it is global in nature, I can't imagine it to be easy. And there's going to be any simple solutions, and it may be some good outcomes and some some not so good outcomes, uh, as it is with things of this scale. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps at this time would be good good point in this conversation to to maybe just take a bit of a a, a bigger picture view on uh, the issue of. Uh, industrial livestock production um, and to what extent do you feel it is becoming uh, even part of the conversation around um, climate change right because you know you mentioned the FAO's livestock's long shadow report which I was discussing on a previous episode of this podcast came out 15 years ago now um, and it was the first time I learned about the impact of industrial um farming uh, on 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 the environment and its its contribu- contribution to greenhouse gas emissions um, mm-hmm. 
I didn't really pay attention to it until much later uh, in the year 2010. Um, but once I did, I was shocked that no one else was talking about it. Um, mm -hmm. But here mm -hmm. we are in 2021, and I feel like uh, things have definitely changed. And it, it is part of the, I would say, mainstream narrative. Now, maybe not uh, in as big a way as fossil fuels is, but to a certain extent, it has, is bubbling up. Uh, into the mainstream na narrative, at least out here in the U.S., which is undoubtedly one of the biggest offenders, uh, the very fact that there's uh, uh, there's this political debate about mm -hmm. you know president taking away your burgers, whether true or not, definitely not true in that case, uh, or uh, you know still uh, some push to to uh, ban the use of the word meat when it comes to plant based and other alternative products and mm -hmm. some tensions mm -hmm. there. It tells you that. People are paying attention. This is not an issue that no one's recognizing. All that being said, it still feels like all the efforts from majority of the big environmental groups, uh, and probably rightfully so, is still all focused on, at least on the environmental side, is all focused on fossil fuels, on divesting from fossil fuels. Um, I guess my question to you is, do you, do you see uh, this becoming a part of the discussion around um, the environment and uh, efforts to shift industries in the right direction? Do you, do you feel like that's happening? And secondly, do you uh, know of any efforts to uh, encourage divestment from industrial livestock? And is that conversation also bubbling around in your circles? Yes. Uh, yes, definitely. And well, first, I just want to mention that in, in uh, 2009, I was at COP15, UNFCCC COP15 in, um, in Copenhagen. And it was, um, and I was there working for different organizations. And I was talking about the issues of livestock and climate change. And, you know, what much of the talk was about Belgian cows. And uh, people mainly just found it a bit funny, a bit ludicrous. And, okay, let, you've had your time. Let's get back to oil. Fine. Um, since then, wow, it's a different world now. Now it is not a matter of, is there a problem with livestock? It's like, how do we address it? You know, even the fact that the industry is so strongly pushing for technical solutions like biogas digesters or, or um, uh, different feed that change, changes the fermentation and stuff like that, is when they do that, they're essentially admitting there is a problem mm -hmm. with livestock production, right? But they're trying to find a, an, an, a technical solution that essentially is not going to... Uh, solve the problem. But at least when they talk about they want to change it, they have indirectly admitted there is a problem. So that's a good starting point. Um, then in, in terms of the discourse overall, yes, things are changing and they're changing fast. You're seeing different countries are really now pushing forward, uh, at least taking the first steps of putting in place plans that are going to address that. Then the implementation is the next step. And I can give a concrete example like Denmark. Um, where the last year there was the, um, the, the climate change legislation was put in place that speaks about um, a 70% reduction by 2030, right? And as Denmark is doing pretty well already on renewable energy, the only way at all that can be addressed is by addressing the livestock, in this case, pig production. So now there's a big discussion within the Danish government between the different parties, how to address that issue. And whereas before it was like, well, 
maybe we can continue, we can cut down the consumption, but we can continue the production, become like one of those super pick production countries. And then other places can cut the production down and we will then export to them. Whereas that was mainly the discussion before. Now it's much more about, well, yeah, we need to cut down, but how do we do that in the best way? How can we ensure just transition for the livestock sector that enables us to, to still uh, have to say an income and maybe increase the income? have jobs and so forth. So even the fact that those discussions are taking place is a recognition that the decrease has to happen. Now it's much more coming down to a granular technical level. And for me, that is such a bliss because now it is gone. It's just moved from a philosophical to like a feasibility down to like a technical discussion. Now, most of the conversations are technical now. There is nobody saying, well, livestock is great for the planet. You know, it, it's actually making things better. Maybe some people are claiming it from a nutritional perspective. That's a whole other conversation. From a climate change perspective, that's done. It's over. Let's move on. Now it's like, how do we address it? And then still some people want to do the technical solutions. But I'm assuming that in the next five years, you're going to see that conversation disappearing as well. No, we're not going to solve the problem with biogas digesters and, and different feed for them. We have to cut down the production. And then it comes down to only a technical discussion. And I think that is a massive step in the right direction that really gives me hope. And um, specifically, you can see how in, in, um, in the UNFCCC as well, um, there's much more discussion around that. Whereas before that was also pushed to the side. The UNFCCC normally cannot take any specific side, but they're now trying to accommodate that they at least have to walk the talk. And they're like several groups, including 50 by 40, pushing for them to serve plant-based foods. At those big conferences where 20,000 people come, you know, why should they serve food, meat and then talk about climate change mitigation at the same time, right? That doesn't really make any sense. So that, that is uh, changing as well. And then to your issue around the other organizations, the environmental movement, it is being embraced more and more, but uh, I think I can recall if I actually touched base on this the last time we spoke, but I, I often speak about the issue of stranded assets, which is normally something applicable to the financial market or big, big uh, sectors. But I talk about stranded assets within the environmental movement because climate change, environmental issues in big organizations have predominantly been about, um, you know, uh, oil and fossil fuels and, and uh, industry transportation. And that means also the expertise has been built up around that. So you have like big organizations with hundreds of people, let's say hundred people organization working on climate change. 90% of those people are you know, experts on fossil fuels, for instance, or transportation. And if you all of a sudden, over a very short amount of time have to shift to really address food systems, livestock issues, well, either you have to do a very big retraining get rid of all your people and hire new people who are experts in this field. And that is a very difficult situation. So I believe it's not a willingness from a lot of environmental movements and it's not an issue of, of not believing it's a big problem. It is simply like, how can we shift around as a movement to really address this issue? Like, how do we do that quickly, but also doing it in a way that is respectful to the work we're doing already. So I think that is a big issue that has to be addressed as well. And um and I am seeing some changes in some organizations where, you know, you can see slowly the programs team is shifting around and they're getting different responsibilities. And all of a sudden, like agriculture, people pop up in organizations that before only were talking about fossil fuels. It is interesting that, and maybe I, I don't acknowledge how, how far we have come because 
even a few years ago when I was uh, having discussions around the impact of livestock on the environment, uh, most of the conversations were about whether that was true or whether someone else who debated us on or me on that point was right, that no, mm-hmm. livestock is not the problem, the science is not clear. Uh, I, I hope that at least we've gone past that point now where, as you as you pointed out, with the industry themselves making efforts to uh, maybe not maybe not acknowledging it in in words, but but by their actions and their investment in you know seaweed to reduce methane emissions, and tells you they acknowledge there's methane emissions finally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do I do think that that's an interesting observation that we are we 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 have shifted into a new world of uh, okay, there is a problem now. The question is, what solutions do we need to tackle the problem? And in that sense, I guess we're in the early days of solutions, mm-hmm. and uh, and and maybe it's it's a little too late, but uh, at least we are here, and we must acknowledge that at least we are at that point where people are finally taking notice. Uh, and you're right; it probably will take a few years for um, not just as we're seeing it happen in in the in the food industry now with the uh, amount of interest and investment uh, in alternative proteins, that's, uh, you know, at the highest level, if you want to look at it as a positive without getting into the intricacies of who owns the technology and who will control it going forward. But at the highest level, it tells you that, that people are betting money on, on a, on a alternative to the existing system because they know the existing system needs to change. And then you see that ripple effect happen with, uh, with governments down the line, perhaps with more with, with better policies to encourage um, to encourage these new industries uh, and take money away from uh, industries today that are polluting the planet and are contributing to our climate crisis. Uh, and then at, at the end of the day, there's also responsibility amongst um, you know civil society as well as responsibilities amongst consumers and 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 um, and and responsible citizens, whether it is through uh, and I say this last because I, I I think we sometimes oversimplify it by putting the onus on a consumer to make the action when mm-hmm. we are just, the more I think about it, majority of consumers are just victims of a system that they don't understand um, and are really, you know, they think they have choices, but within the within the range of choices you have in a grocery store, it's uh, it's usually a few companies that control uh, them. They're presented to you in different ways. Um, so we always have to be mindful and watchful for greenwashing and co-optation from uh, corporate interests. But you know, at least where if you want to look at this as the as the starting line, I, I think we can only you know if, if peop- we finally acknowledge there's a problem, things can only hopefully get better from here on end. And so that's my super optimistic view of uh, of where things can go. Um, you know, I'd love to close out this conversation with sort of a, your take on, on where you think your focus is going to be for the next uh, year or so, because I, I anticipate I'm going to chat with you often because I uh, this is stuff I, I find really fascinating and, and you're tackling it from a different angle that I don't often get to explore, which is um, getting a real global view into the thing, uh, into the issues um, so we can, you know, we have to take in different viewpoints. We cannot assume we have all the answers sitting here in the West uh, and make decisions around feeding the world uh, when we don't quite understand what the world wants uh, and who are we to decide what the world wants. So where's your focus going to be and what are you most excited about in the coming year? Um, and then um, 
any final words in terms of uh, what people can look out for from 50 by 40 in the in the coming year? Great. Well, thanks a lot for, for that opportunity. I think I'll mention three things that really excite me or I see as crucial challenges. <clears throat> the first one is to kind of keep the movement, the kind of like the uh, livestock, anti-livestock movement, however you want to phrase it. Keep it tight and keep it friendly on friendly terms. Because I am, like you touched on, on in the beginning and we discussed in the beginning, I am a bit concerned about the the different camps, one being market economy and consolidation, the other one being decentralization, food sovereignty, how they are not you know, seeing eye to eye. And I think we need both, as we already discussed about in length, to, to move forward. But I think, and this is not my or 50 by 40 responsibility alone, it's something we collectively as a movement will have to stay on friendly terms and acknowledge the differences in terms of theory of change but we all wanna to, want to see the same thing and keep being respectful and keep speaking to each other and keep you know, sitting in the same house and working things out, even if they're difficult. Because any disruption, any, any kind of like hostile um, steps uh, within the movement will be very detrimental to our cause and will be uh, very detrimental to impacting governments and, and industry. So that's a, that's a big challenge, but I'm excited because uh, all the people I work with in 50 by 40, whether it's the one that are really pushing industry or the ones who are trying to stop industry, they're all really smart, dedicated, amazing human beings. And I really enjoyed working with, with all of them. So I think, you know, based on like all the stuff that's there, I think we as a movement can, can do a lot. And I'm very excited about that, but it's an important conversation. The other thing is Global South. Um, it is no secret when you look at the Food System Summit, even when you look at Food 50 by 40, look at most organizations, there is still a predominant representation from the global north or high-income countries. And, and that's really, really a pity. And uh, we put in place a so-called global leadership program within 50 by 40, where we specifically are trying to, to find ways of um, in engaging with and, and, um, and in some ways empowering or helping uh, key stakeholders in the global south, particularly young people. So it's not like a matter of us saying, "Why don't you do this?" And and we, if we provide, can we find some funding? You can do X, Y, Z. Because that's not for us to decide. We want to engage with people on the ground who knows their their territory, that knows what they're doing. We just want to say, how can we help in any way? So that's a, a program I'm very excited about and seeing how we can really start building a much stronger uh, movement. In uh, in low and, and uh, in uh, low and middle income countries, uh, and they're already there. It's not like they need us. They're already there. So many amazing, particularly young people, doing amazing work in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin American countries. That blows my mind. Um, I just want to see how we, as a movement, can help in any way. Uh, and the final thing is, and not surprising to you probably, the issue around just transition. So that has really now taken up picked up speed. So um, just livestock transition is something we've been talking about from the beginning of 50 by 40. It was a bit difficult to get it out there and there's not so much acceptance, but now it's really picking up speed. And through our role at the UN Food System Summit, we've managed to put it in there as a one of the game-changing solutions that is now officially part of it. You can look it up on the website that one of the key solutions to changing the food system is to in, uh, in 
uh, start and, and accelerate a just transition within livestock production. And it's the same old thing. It is to, to mitigate climate change, public health, environmental issues, equitable food distribution, biodiversity protection, but importantly, and this is the biggest thing for the financial aspects, because we are working on demonstrating that that shift to less livestock production will, for all the stakeholders involved, mean increased uh, job creation, uh, better, dis better, excuse me, uh, increased, uh, increased job creation, better, uh, better jobs, more gender equitable jobs, more fair jobs, safer jobs uh, that all contribute to the GDP on countries. So for us, it's a no-brainer. We do something that everybody benefits from and the country gets more, more money. Whether it's a traditional capitalist model or if it's a circular economy, it will be beneficial. And that is what we, this year, and particularly in the Food Systems Summit and particularly around COP26 uh, in Glasgow, the India, will be pushing all of this with a view to making sure that within many different fora, particularly in climate change, shifting away from livestock is seen as a win-win-win-win-win situation. So eliminating any kind of arguments that it's a good thing. And once we get there, I think we're in for a really interesting ride where things will go much faster than we had hoped. Lasse Brun, thank you so much for the conversation today. I always enjoy catching up with you and appreciate you uh, indulging all my uh, various questions and uh, complex ways of looking at things. Uh, I think we're dealing with a big challenge. And of course, because of it's, it's so enormous, we have to be open to a multitude of solutions. And eventually we're going to find our, hopefully we're going to find our way out of this. And thanks to the work you're doing, I think we, we have a shot. So I appreciate your work and I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here as always. And I, I really enjoy the complex and challenging questions. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.